Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, folks, to the Absolute Return Podcast. On today's show, we welcome special guest, Meteora Capital founder and CIO, Vic Mattel. Meteora Capital is an investment firm specializing in SPAC-related instruments in both public and private companies. On the show, Vic discusses his path into the hedge fund world, the Twitter deal and his thoughts on merger arbitrage, what appeals to him about SPAC investing, advice for those looking to break into the hedge fund industry, and more. So with no further ado, here's our show on SPAC investing with Meteora Capital founder and CIO Vic Mattel. Super excited to have Vic from Meteora Capital on the show today. One of the biggest players in the SPAC market. So this guy knows his stuff. Vic, how are you today? Good. I really appreciate you guys having us having me on today. Yeah, super stoked to have you on all the way from South Florida. Beautiful there. I was there just a few weeks ago. It's an awesome right. place to be. I figured we could kick things off. I heard off. you were playing polo a few <laughs> weeks ago. Right? <laughs> I wish. I, I watched polo. That's about it. And uh, tr- try to do some entertaining. But uh, yeah, it was a good event at the Crypto Polo Cup. So. Uh, uh, that's what it was, crypto polo. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, a merging of two two worlds that you wouldn't expect, crypto and polo, but uh, entertaining yes. nonetheless. I'm always interested in hearing investors' backstories, specifically. You know, I, I know you started out in the investment banking industry in the TMT Silicon Valley, specifically. How did you break into Wall Street financial services? What's your backstory? Yeah, it's 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 kind of um, it's. It's the uh, the kind of the American dream sort of story, I guess. You know, child of immigrants, you know, who uh, came to this country. I was born here and um, went to state school, went to the University of Florida. So I've actually relocated from New York after 20 years back to Florida. So happy to be back in uh, South Florida. It was uh, it, it got more traditional. I was very fortunate that Raymond James. Uh, which is a Florida headquartered uh, bank. They've really expanded by leaps and bounds, but um, they opened an office in Palo Alto in it was 2002. And you know, I, I was fortunate. I got a job offer there. Some of the other regional banks, and I had the opportunity with Raymond James to get staffed in their West Coast Tech M&A group. That was. Um, a new initiative, new launch. They ha- hired three senior bankers, one from RBC, one from Goldman, and one from Piper Jaffray. And they had to build out the junior team. And um, it was right there on Sand Hill Road. And it was you know, a great experience. It was in uh, at the end of the dot-com bubble bursting. So you know, we're picking up the pieces of the rubble in that. And Interestingly, we were focused on hardware companies and networking companies. So a lot of companies that have raised a ton of capital at really, really high share prices, and they were burning tons and tons of cash, and um, some of them were even trading at negative enterprise values where they had more <laughs> cash on their balance sheet than their market cap because you know, their burn rates were so high. So I think it you know, in some way prepared me for being in, uh, in the SPAC game <laughs> as it is today. And, Good point. Um, you know, we did a lot of difficult financings. I did that for three years, a lot of structured financings, a lot of M&A sales of small mid-cap stories, and then after that, 
you know, I, I was from having grown up on the East Coast, wanted to get back to the East Coast, loved my time in California, but um, wanted to come back to the East Coast and wanted to be on the buy side. And so that was, you know, how the transition happened that I ended up in New York um, about 17 years ago and went to B school at NYU and then got a job at a fund called Glazer Capital when it probably managed like 50 million and you know helped grow that business for the the last 15 16 years as a analyst and then portfolio manager and um, you know had responsibilities for SPAC investing along with merger arbitrage and all the other market neutral strategies that you know well Julian and you kind of cover and SPACs have kind of taken over my life the last few years uh, like it has for many folks but uh, it's been an interesting run um, as a capital markets buy side person the last 20 years by and large my career has been in the structured product market neutral investing asset class and you know, first started in merger arbitrage strictly, then expanded into high yield, distress, cap structure, and then around 2009 got into SPACs and, you know, covered all of those strategies. And then it's just been the last three or so years as the SPAC market's really exploded that I've spent more time on SPACs. Uh, you know, as you know well, there's this odd backwater product that, uh, you know, there was a handful of SPAC raises a year, maybe 10 to 15. There were some interesting deals that came out of it prior to 2019, but it wasn't really something institutions or institutional allocators focused on. And over the last two years plus, I'd say it really started with Chamath and the Virgin Galactic deal, and it really opened the imagination of what types of companies and businesses could go public and it you know became the haven for late stage VC growth type investing for that kind of bubbly period. I don't know if you call, I mean I think it was a bubble in the entire market, not just SPACs and regular way IPOs and companies going public at two hundred times ARRs and things like that. And it was really the blending of the public and private markets, which I think will continue to occur where those markets blur into one and you see that with late stage growth companies and so you know, I made a conscious decision to kind of go all in on SPACs for this next phase of my career and left um, Glazer at the end of 21 and formed a new fund, uh, Meteora Capital. Took a couple closed-end funds that we managed that focused on um, the SPAC ecosystem, on sponsor partnerships, investing in those risk pools. You know, doing the public stuff, doing the pipes and all the other stuff and doing some late stage growth VC investing. So it's really kind of like a bellwether crossover type fund that still cues very closely to my background in structured product market neutral investing. And, you know, we tangentially follow the merger arb stuff. I still love it. I've done it for 17 years. But, and, you know, the cap structure, we're doing some in high yield, but the high yield we're doing is around SPACs. And it's more around the financing for these deals. And there's a lot of interesting structured financings that, um, you know, we can talk about in this. But that's, that's been the focus of what we've been up to the last year or two. That's great to hear your story. And you made this transition from the sell side to the buy side, which we see often. You typically see, uh, you know, young 
capital markets professionals, people who want to break into the business, start out either on the investment banking side or equity research side and, and make that transition to the buy side after a handful of years now. Did you always want to be an investor early on? Is this something that was like a dream of yours? What got you hooked on the investing business? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, growing up, you know, being a you know, an Indian kid, whatever, it seemed like all your friends' parents were doctors or whatever, because I think there was like a big wave, and I'm sure you see that in Canada of like, you know, uh, the immigration wave that they're all doctors uh, that are of Indian background. And I just was always naturally interested in finance, you know, watched CNBC as a kid. Uh, we had a subscription to Investor Business Daily. You know, I followed the Canslin method, and um, probably the benefit was when I was like in college. Um, we had like, you know, it was in college was the first time where I had a uh, high speed internet and, you know, I had dial up in high, uh, growing up. And if you remember back in the day, the E-Trades or whatever they were, <laughs> you'd get a free computer if you opened up an account with like $5,000. So I used to like open up a new account every month, get a computer, <laughs> sell it for like a couple hundred bucks. And, you know, it was trading stuff like Qualcomm and whatever. And it was just making gobs of money. And I think that's really, you know, what a little bit like the frenzy that we saw the last couple of years, not as much on the, you know, the meme stuff, but you know, it's just, it was a frenetic trading environment in, uh, the late nineties. And, uh, that's really what hooked me and, um, spent a summer in New York, um, my sophomore or junior year working for a, private wealth kind of guy, but it was really just a broker. Right. And that really cemented that I wanted to be in the financial markets. And so, um, you know, when I graduated, got the job at Raymond James in investment banking, I did want to do investment banking. I think, you know, that equity research, to your point, are great starting points for people that want to be in the investment management industry. Um, you really, you learn the principles of valuation, financial modeling, a lot of those like basic skills that um, at least I didn't get in college, you know, that yeah, I'm sure kids now today, there's more and the resources today are just, you know, infinite, it seems like. But that was really the goal. And I think that was the goal of a lot of people in my uh, kind of position when I was, you know, in my uh, late uh, or 20 or so, 2021, about to graduate college. If you go do investment banking or equity research, you put in your two, three years, it's miserable, but you, uh, you know, and then you, and then jump to the buy side or something like that. And so it served me well. It was a you know, great experience. And, um, but yeah, this, to your, the question about stocks, I've always had a native interest or not, you know, since I was a, a teenager kind of thing, a native interest in the stock market and investing. You made a really good point with respect to going to an investment bank for kids just out of school. Uh, Mike and I did that uh, track as well, and they just provide phenomenal training that really helps you make that leap. Or Absolutely. some people stick with it and make a career out of it, which um, you know you can get compensated extremely well. Now, you moved to Glacier Capital, one of the biggest players in the arbitrage space, amongst other strategies. What would you say some of the most important lessons that you learned there are? Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate that I joined before the financial crisis. 
So, you know, got to see some different market environments. I don't know if you saw Bill Gurley's tweet this weekend about like yeah. everyone who's been investing the last 13 years has just been on a one way <laughs> um, tear or bull market and they don't understand like cash flows on these other yeah. things. So, Except for 2020, a brief period there when the world right. seemed to be ending, but bounced back right. quickly. Right, that's true. Yeah, during the pandemic, everyone was looking at asset value again. So, so yeah, I mean, that I, I think the thing I learned in that was when you do these market neutral arbitrage investings, you know this well. You're really you're picking up pennies in front of a steam truck in many of these strategies, in particular merger arbitrage. And so, risk management is you know the key determinant of whether you're going to be success. These tend to be levered strategies. Um, and so that that was very I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to kind of get that level of preservation of capital, um, you know, taking every dollar of LP capital as as if it's the last dollar someone's going to trust with you, and you know have a very conservative view to what you're doing. And you know you see this. You know, I follow you on Twitter, and you're tweeting about these deals and stuff. You get it. It's it's a very much risk management driven strategy. You need to be right 98 percent of the time, kind of thing. And so it was an interesting way to grow up in the business versus you know you start at some long short growth fund and you're trying to you know hit home runs. Here we're trying to you know get hit by a pitch, walks, bunts, singles, <laughs> and they kind of add up and. It was an interesting way to start my career on the buy side and built out a little bit into high yield and distress where you can see that risk-reward paradigm in a different light than if you came from a traditional long equity perspective. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Absolutely. And so we'll get back to this back side in, 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 a, in a moment. But on the merger arb side, how, how has merger arb investing changed since you got started on the buy side um, in, in the industry? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's like the CFA Institute like 10 years ago put a study out about how deals get more efficient. And I'm sure you guys have seen this. It's like, I remember when I first started, you know, these deals would trade at ridiculous spreads first thing in the morning, pre-market. It's like no one understood it. Merger agreements, you know, back in the day, Bear Stearns would deliver um, letters of intent on financings for leverage buyouts, right? It, was, it wasn't binding committed financing. You know, reverse term fees, specific performance, material adverse carve outs did not occur until after 9 11, really, in any meaningful way, like IBP, Tyson, things like that. So I think the practitioners have created a more efficient product and it's really turned it into like a true risk arbitrage where you have to get paid for the risk you're taking on an antitrust basis or, you know, financing failure and um, things of that sort. And so the market's gotten much more efficient 
And I think it's the type of strategy that it's a great strategy for people to do. And then, you know, as long as you can understand the contracts, you can get through a 300-page merger agreement in 15 minutes and get through the key conditions to close and understand the material adverse effect clause and what the remedies are for breach. Um, it's a great strategy that if you're good at it, you can't be wrong at it. You got to be right every time. And it's one of those, um, you know, just working man strategies where you got to do the work and do the analysis and you'll probably be right because it's like we used to always say, like if you interview 10 merger art managers and you ask them to take a basket of a hundred deals and bucket them in 10 different distinct buckets of the lowest risk deals to the highest risk deals, those 10 different buckets will look largely similar. So the, the difference in whether one of the managers is successful versus the next is making the decision which bucket to stay in at which point in the market environment and which cycle. And so that's really kind of the, the key part, I think, to being successful in uh, the merger arb strategy in particular. Plus, in addition, the amount of leverage put on those strategies, because as you indicated, uh, these tend to be levered strategies. But really, go ahead and point with respect to earning a risk premium, because that's typically how you know all these different strategies and, and asset classes work. Now, from a risk arbitrager's perspective, and I saw you tweeting about this, any of our listeners definitely give Vic a follow on Twitter, you did have some tweets regarding uh, Twitter, Elon, which is one of the most <laughs> topical things to discuss these days. And in terms of risk premium, this thing has it in spades because it is the largest leverage buyout yeah. of all time and just uh, an insane amount of money for an individual person <laughs> to come up with. Right. Uh, $44 billion with a $21 billion equity check. I'm sure he doesn't have that just sitting in a checking account at City, But... What are your thoughts on this situation? How do you just, you know, you distill it down into uh, a case? What are your thoughts? Fascinating. I mean, so my Meteora funds were focused on SPAC investing, so we don't have a position in it. So just for full transparency, I'm merely, I have the popcorn on the sideline, but I've read the merger agreement and I've probably read everything about this that you could read. And uh, sorry about that. And, um, you know, it's a great deal, but I'm also glad I have no exposure to it because <laughs> you, you you walk in on uh, whatever day it was the deal was announced. It's trading like at 52 on yeah. 5420 deal, and the press release read from you know, the CEO and the board of Twitter that this is a rock solid deal. We have certainty on financing. It's going to close. Like you know, all these things you're not supposed to be putting in a press release if the merger agreement read the way it actually read when you saw it a few days later. <laughs> I don't know why they did that, but it's and then it, you know, subsequently traded off from 52 to 48, which is just a massive move yeah. on a gross basis for a merger arb deal. It has everything from even, you know, the po- political angle, right? That Elizabeth Warren, Senate hearings, House hearings, Elon Musk, uh, you know, is there a CFIUS angle because he's uh, South African by birth? Uh, does he have to go through that review? He controls SpaceX, so he probably doesn't. You know, just those basic blocking and tackling things. Is there an antitrust question? I think most people here would say there's there's no credible antitrust case. But if you know Facebook and Giphy got blocked by the European Commission, who God knows what's going to come out of this. You've got the issues of free speech. You've got the issues of all these other things. And that actually doesn't touch 
into any of like the parts that are probably really what's going to make a difference whether this closes or not. And you've I've seen you've tweeted out about like this is a binding agreement between the parties. This isn't just like you know a proposal. This isn't funding secure. This is <laughs> this is a binding agreement between the parties with specific performance. There are yes provisions. If there's a financing failure, there's a billion dollar reverse termination fee, and then that delves into the rabbit hole of this margin loan. And financing, and when he makes stock sales, like the eight and a half billion he sold, is there taxes that he has to pay on that, or is that relative to the option exercise, or just you know other stock that he may be taking a loss on? Is it is does he then replace the stock he sold with now unencumbered shares against the margin loan? And you know I've seen theories that in theory, if he sold sold all of the shares that back the margin loan, then therefore he cannot. Be in, he cannot be forced to fund the margin loan, and then there's you know the notion that uh, he's doing this for tax reasons, or he's doing this to sell <laughs> his Twitter, his Tesla stock at a high, yeah. and then it's just paying a billion dollars so he doesn't spook the market. Is he selling Tesla? He has a reason to sell it, and then six months later he'll sell it, and or he'll six months later he'll walk away from the Twitter deal somehow and claim a financing failure if Tesla stocks lower. You know, it's 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 fascinating all around. And then this, this weekend, the Wall Street Journal ran a, a fairly in-depth story on his relationship with uh, Jack Dorsey and how this apparently has been a discussion they've been having. This is something he's been discussing with Peter Thiel, among others. And you know, so I kind of shake out that unless we get into a financial Armageddon and Tesla stock is off thirty, forty percent, which it very well could be, obviously, but. Um, I think he has every intent of closing the deal, and he's doing it for idealistic reasons. And whatever happens, you know, we'll all find out together. But I, I, I'd like to believe optimistically that he's doing this for the right reasons, and because he has a real vision for Twitter being the community, you know, center of the square, um, for all to kind of have free speech. But we'll we'll see. But I. I not one as a merger arb you want to be in. It's, like, it's just one as a merger arb. I'd rather be in Activision, Microsoft, or something else like this. Like, you know, heck, I'd rather be back in AT and T, Time Warner, or something. You know, like I don't, I don't know how analyzable some of these things are, and I have no idea why Twitter's board did not insist on your traditional seven to ten percent of deal value reverse termination fee, right. which should have been three to five billion instead of a one billion dollar fee. Not that he has, he doesn't, and you, you tweeted it. He doesn't have any clear walkaway rights. It's not like he can just wake up tomorrow and say, "I changed my mind. I'll pay you a billion dollars." It doesn't work that way. There's a full specific performance, the benefit of the bargain, the conditions to close have been met, and the financing is available. Um, he has to close the deal. So, yeah, it's it's weird. You're kind of you're you're short a put on Tesla being long the Twitter spread, and I don't know how you necessarily, other than maybe buying puts on Tesla, which is an odd thing to do to hedge yourself <laughs> on a cash deal. Yeah, but you know, it's it's an interesting trade. And just having covered these type of situations over the last 17 years, you're never going to get to the right answer. And you're never going to get to a 99% confidence as an investor. You're going to have to go with a gut feel. You're going to go with an expected value. You know the downside's probably 25 to 30 if this thing falls apart. And 
you kind of know you know what your upside is. I don't think a topping bid's coming in. Toma Bravo or whoever else, I don't think anyone's going to step in. So you're looking at a trade that's like you now five bucks up and twenty five down kind of thing. One up, five down. I don't love I don't love those. Just looking at an expected value basis when you've got something this complex, uh, you typically like to see them one up, two down, like where Activision is, or Activision's probably one up and half down or one down, not making a fundamental call. But I, th- I think I like what Buffett's doing there better than what uh, people are doing on Twitter today. Yeah. And speaking of Buffett, and he's been an arbitrage practitioner for many, many decades, basically since you know, the 1950s. He always said, you know, you wait for the fat pitch. You don't have to take a swing on every single one. And if you look at the, the arbitrage market, I mean, it's basically like, Hundred uh, risk arbitrage trades in North America, and you know, literally, like many, many hundreds of uh, SPAC arbitrage trades out there. And and as you indicated, this one specifically is not explicitly correlated to Tesla shares, but you know, implicitly it is. And uh, I like that analogy to being short a Tesla put because certainly the the financing is reliant on Tesla shares, not crashing. Now, with respect to the SPAC market, I did want to transition to focusing on that. To start out, uh, if you could tell us what the founding thesis behind Meteora Capital, what you're looking to accomplish, you previously indicated this massive growth in the SPAC market. What made you want to focus there? Yeah, it was it was kind of like, I guess, most things in life. It was born out of like organic experiences and you know what what interested me at this point in my life and career and you know it actually was born in 2016 in some way um, the name Meteora came from one of my SPAC partners a sponsor a Greek individual and he's based out of Greece and he had he was raising a SPAC and I was investing in the risk pool personally and I Google searched Greek rock, famous rock formations and Polypanese and Meteora were like the top two searches. Polypanese, <laughs> I'm probably not even pronouncing right, is way too long and so I settled on Meteora and so you know, if you look in Delaware, there's an SPV, it's called Meteora SPAC SPV and so that was kind of the genesis and this was back you know, a number of years ago. And so, yeah, I kind of had the vision that at some point, like, you know, if I go start my own gig and start my own fund, um, it'll be around the SPAC ecosystem. I've really enjoyed getting to know sponsors, working alongside them as a co-partner by investing in their risk pools and serving as a sub-advisor and helping them, you know, source their deals, structure their deals and get that stuff done. I love the public trade too. It's a great trade as well. And, you know, you understand it better than anybody. It's it's a great call option that you're long with T-bill downside risk. It's a great fixed income alternative that has real equity upside if you partner with the right sponsors and they do credible deals. And you can have a year like 2020 where, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, you, you capture real equity upside and things like that. And so, when I formed Meteora, the goal was to be a holistic end-to-end sponsor partner. So we you know, built a great organization with six investment professionals that are focused on every aspect of the SPAC cap table, you know, from the sponsor investment to the public investment to the pipes and late-stage growth investing. So we cover kind of all aspects 
of the SPAC market. We've got 30 years of collective experience in SPACs. I've been at it now like 15 years, um, almost eight years sponsoring SPACs. Um, my associate PM, Joe Tonus, who I think has done your podcast before. Yep, yep. We had Joe on the show as well. Yeah. He's, you know, he's an old head in this game. He's been around since 2016 with the Haymaker franchise, you know, has a a proud pedigree in the SPAC market. You know, one spa world they took public, 100 million of EBITDA. Stock, I think, is still around 10. Their second deal was with Arco GPM, seventh largest convenience store operator in North America, 200 million plus of EBITDA. Like doing real deals, right? And when I hired Joe, his old boss, Andy Hare, was taking um, Arco GPM public. And, you know, he made this joke. I don't think he'll mind me saying it. He's like, I'd have a hell of a lot more hair right now if I was just taking some flying taxi public instead of a real <laughs> company. And he's bald. So, you know, like, you know, so it's like, yeah. you know, and so I wanted to build an organization around individuals that had a depth of experience and pedigree in the SPAC market. And so I think that's what we've done. You know, I've got a lot of experience on the public side and the structured product trade and things like that. And so, you know, we work bankers, lawyers, everybody turns to us for advice. So we're involved in a lot of interesting processes. And um, that's what we've done is just try to build a organization that is around the SPAC asset class. And it really is an asset class. It's you know 200 billion afloat, 600 plus SPACs. There's a lot going on from the regulatory side. There's a lot going on from the capital markets side. And, you know, I I felt that there was a generational investment opportunity to be an expert, you know, to be focused on one thing, to not do merger arb, to do not do these other things that dilute your time and attention. And I felt like I could do my best work being laser focused on the SPAC asset class. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. That's a really good point. It's um, an asset class that has really grown tenfold over the past few years and really emerged into, uh, I'd say, like, you know, 2020 and 2021 was perhaps the year of the SPAC. It just got so much attention. And now a lot of that attention is uh, negative bias from the media just to Due to poor DSPAC performance now at Meteora, you guys are involved in, in basically every stage of a SPAC, whether it's uh, you know the IPO, uh, risk capital, co-sponsoring SPACs, pipes, things of that nature. How does your approach differ from some of your peers out there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If, you know it, 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 it differs in some sense that I, I found just you know, having worked at larger organizations that being a a SPAC specialist is kind of an odd thing, right? It's not like, you know, capital markets bankers can be considered like the ECM guys that do the IPOs and work on the deals can be SPAC specialists. But in general, there aren't a lot of SPAC specialists out there. And 
having insight into the private market and not just the public trade. And that's really where I thought our differentiated edge would come from is that we understand the plumbing of the market, you know, how these deals get done. Whereas when you're focused on the public SPAC trade or the public SPAC arbitrage trade as your kind of sole focus, there's that Chinese wall and the, you know, you, you're beating against it and you really don't know what's going on on the other side and what the plumbing of the market is. And so we, we've tried to make a concerted effort and I've tried to hire people that have an insight into that side of the equation, that what makes this puzzle work. And I, th- I think back to um, Neil Shaw, who used to run cap- SPAC capital markets at City for the better part of a decade, and now runs SPAC ECM and maybe has a wider role at Evercore. And you know, he describes SPACs as it's like 3D chess. You know, you've got all these moving pieces, you've got a blind pool, blank check entity, and you're trying to get a deal done. It's like impossible. It's literally, it's an impossible product to deal with. Like, who's kidding who? And it's hard work. And, you know, I have the utmost respect for the sponsors that do it the right way and get great deals done. The bankers that are in this ecosystem that have been doing this for decades, the David Battalions, Cantor Fitzgerald, uh, Neuron, Eric Hackle, these guys who really have been at it, Pavin, you know, they're just very talented. Tina, Jeffries, like, these are some of, I think, our generation's greatest deal makers, you know, from the sell side that are working in this product and they're going to earn their keep the next couple of years because it's a lot of hard work to get, you know, a lot of deals done when 600 some odd stacks were raised <laughs> in 2021. And it's just fun. You know, it's a fun asset class. If you like deal making, if you like putting puzzles together, it's, it's, it's an interesting product. And, you know, the back end solutions are just going to be you know, they're so interesting. The bells and whistles that are coming on these converts with ratchets, penny warrants, and all these other things. It's it's really a, it's a great product for the structured product, event-driven oriented investor. And there's something for everybody to do. There's the arbitrage trade, there's the you know, the back end trade, there's the sponsor trade that many do in some shape or form. And there's plenty to keep us busy. There's no question. In addition to the uh, DSPAC short selling, I did see a short report come out today on a recent DSPAC. But uh, oh, which one was it? I saw the I saw it yesterday. The person tweeted that uh, I forget which group that we're gonna. It's like one of the biggest VC pump and dumps or something. <laughs> yeah, it was Ion Cube, which we did have on this show oh recently. My. So. Oh my god, Nico Damasi and Harry you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, a little surprise. Quantum computing. Yeah, Nico is. I haven't read the report, obviously, but. Nico is, you know, he's like a Stanford PhD in like electrical mechanical engineering. I, I'm curious to see what the report says, but I know his depth and knowledge of quantum computing is unrivaled. So for sure, but it's also an emerging, it's emerging. I don't know what he called emerging technology. So oh, definitely, uh, yeah. And we've we've had uh, Nicola on the podcast as well. We had Ion okay. Q on the podcast. And the thing about these stocks is they're not going to play out until like five, ten years later. So I mean, putting out a short report, it's not really fair because they're making all these claims. Oh, you know, the technology—it's a joke. It doesn't work. I mean. I certainly couldn't tell that. I don't think anyone can tell at this point for the most part. Will we be able to tell in five, ten years? Yes. But at this point, it's extremely speculative on the both long and short side. So volatility is something that you can expect there. But we have seen other short reports. I mean, the uh, Nikola Motors was a good one. Uh, in any event, 
you did mention this game of 3D chess, perhaps these days more so 4D chess. A lot of bearishness with respect to potential liquidations. I mean, there's so much product out there, over 600 SPACs seeking for a deal, pretty short uh, time frames on those ones. What's your view on this prospect of widespread liquidations? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I guess the way we think about it, I guess I should say, is if you rewind the clock to September of last year, the average pre-deal warrant was like 60 to 70 cents. Yep. And the average post-deal warrant was like $1.20 plus. Now it's like 60, 70 cents for the post-deal and 33 cents, I think I saw last, yep. um, for the pre-deals. So the market's factoring in like 40 to 50% liquidations. Yep. There's 575, I think, SPACs searching for a deal. There's this Q1 of 23 maturity wall that is going to be quite onerous. Um, there's a race to the bottom in many respects in terms of you know getting something done. The SEC proposed rules seem to limit the time frame to not be considered an investment company act to 24 months, announce a deal in 18, close in 24. So they're generally trying to, it seems, eliminate the ability to have extensions, which has been a great salve for these SPACs to like, you know, you can extend your life for years to find a deal. I don't know necessarily why that's a bad thing and why the SEC is um, trying to shorten their life to a hard 24 months because I think it's going to force sponsors to do, you know, things they shouldn't be doing to rush a deal out and not liquidate. So, but I guess that's one of the unintended consequences of some of these proposed rules that we'll all learn together what happens. But to your question, I mean, I, I remember Betsy Cohen, she spoke at some Bloomberg summit three or four months ago and said she expected 30% of sponsors to liquidate. I, I think that's a good number. And I still think that number is reasonable. I mean, you still see a great pace of deal activity. Um, you know, there's like 10 or 11 deals announced in April, uh, maybe more. There's enough to kind of clear the backlog with some extensions. You will see folks liquidate for different reasons, I think, than has been generally discussed in the market. We are aware of like some blue chip growth equity funds that raise SPACs that have effectively said, you know, we put $10 million into this thing. We're not going to do like a grab altimeter situation where, you know, we write another $100, $200 million check and the thing trades off 50% and we've just lost our LPs a ton of money. For them, it's like, you know, it's writing a series DE check and they'll let the $10 million go to zero. And there's, you know, ones that won't do deals. There's sponsors we know that will are resolute. They will not do deals that are reputationally damaging in any respect. They won't do deals outside of their core vertical. So you're going to see liquidations, I think, from parties that you did not expect to liquidate because they're very credible, talented operators and sponsors and private equity and VC folks. But for them, you know, they wrote a check out of a multi-billion dollar fund, a $10 million check to raise a SPAC. And if they can't find the right deal or the market's not cooperative, I'll go write the check in the private market. And I, I think you'll see a lot of that. So uh, I'm going to stick with a 30% liquidation. Um, I think, unfortunately, you're going to see a lot of these like PowerPoint business plan type deals get done. And you know, like how many Bitcoin mining EV concept plays? You know, I think there was one yesterday or the day before that some random like Chinese-based CH Auto yep. and a billion valuation. <laughs> yeah, like 1.3 yeah, like, billion I enterprise not, value. Yeah, I, I know nothing about it. I didn't look at the deck. It's just, it's it's unfortunate. I don't think, like, if there was a way to, like, segment out 
what's a SPAC from something else? Or, you know, like it's, SPACs become a four-letter word again and gotten a bad name and reputation. And for right for on, for many re- right reasons on some level, right? And um, if there's a way to kind of clean up that aspect of it, I think you get to a healthier product. I do think we actually get there. I think the SEC proposed rules, many of them are a step in the right direction. I don't think anyone's complaining about better disclosures. I don't think anyone's really complaining about you know the use of projections in a, a sane way. Um, I don't you know like I don't know how appropriate it is to have zero revenue companies with 2027 models, right. you know, and deals being sold off that. I'm a little torn on it because I, you know, from the little VC investing we do, like you see that a lot in the private markets. So, what's so wrong about putting in the public markets if it's all disclosed? And, you know, conceptually, like, you know, you and I, we look at these models and we haircut them by 90% and we kind of understand. I do think the outright fraud stuff, there needs to be a better way to regulate that where, like, you know, you, you're claiming a backlog or an order book that's just not real. Like, right, it's like, you know, these indicated orders, you've got a thousand trucks from XYZ or you're a LIDAR company and you've got a partnership with a major auto OEM, but that auto OEM and you have not had a significant conversation of any sort in years, but they happen to make a $2 million investment in you in your seed round. And, and now you're claiming that they're a strategic partner, that you're going to be in their vehicles uh, in 2025. There's got to be a way to kind of stamp that out and get better diligence. So, I do like the transferring or a clear defined liability on the sponsor, but the sponsor better go do the due diligence and ensure that these numbers that they're putting their SPAC's name behind and that they have, that their board has liability for, um, has been thoroughly vetted. Fraud always occurs, right? You're not going to uncover everything, but a lot of the stuff, the excesses that you saw over the last two years could have easily been prevented if the sponsor, if the banks did significant due diligence that you know, they would have done otherwise on a regular way IPO. So, you know, I applaud, um, you know, Chairman Gensler for, you know, some of the stuff. There is some of the stuff in there. It's like a 300-page document that's going to go through this comment period that it's going to have unintended consequences. I think there's aspects of it that are unfair to SPACs that seem to advantage regular way IPOs. We all know that, like, you know, favored hedge funds get an inside look into the CFO's model and like it's no secret why Rivian, everyone had the same financial model for Rivian and same production targets as the company has. You know, like it's so there's elements of that where SPACs kind of democratize the information flow and you get like a four to six month window to say this is credible or this is not credible. And if you think it's not credible, you can take your $10 back. Um, so, you know, it's. I don't know. It's a long-winded way of saying that there's a lot going on, but I think that creates a lot of opportunity for those that are able to, you know, have a differentiated view on this asset class. And perhaps we're moving past the PowerPoint business going public by SPAC, but nonetheless, I mean, if you look at the current market, that uh, Trump Media DWAC is the most successful one, and uh, not much more there aside from a PowerPoint, but I digress. One other interesting... Well, I, I would say what, what, on, on that point, not to, I, for full disclosure, we have some sponsor shares. We did the anchor deal in that deal. I don't Good have, for you. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any specific like information on the transaction um, otherwise. And obviously, it, it seems like uh, 
you know, just from an outsider's perspective, there's some challenges to getting it over the finish line. They haven't even filed a prospectus yet. And it's been six plus months. Yeah. So we'll see. I have no idea why that hasn't occurred. But like Clubhouse raised money at a $4 billion valuation, right? right. I mean, I just, I wonder regular way, like Chamath, as much as he's a lightning rod, tweeted out, you know, the regular way IPO performance versus SPAC from April of 21 to April of 22. And uh, the charts had a correlation of one. You know, and so I think we were in a period of the market where everything, you know, that was these growth hypey stories traded off dramatically. SPACs, for whatever reason, are the easy target because they took less mature companies public. But, you know, you had plenty of, you know, frauds across the ecosystem and not just SPACs. Um, SPACs, you know, shame on the sponsors who didn't do proper due diligence. But you look at Rivian; it's not. It was a regular way IPO, or Peloton, or you know any of these companies, Allbirds. You know any of these growth stories; they're all yeah. off sixty to eighty percent from their IPO. Yeah, how about Luckin Coffee, the Chinese coffee right, company, right. and that exactly, was right. a complete right. fraud, and it went public exactly. by IPO. Right, exactly. Railway IPO with blue chip banks on the cover and yeah. all this other stuff. So, I think you know SPACs for whatever reason have gotten the brunt of the bad reputation where. You know there are elements of SPACs that can be cleaned up, and I think they, the SEC is doing their best to try to clean those up. But by and large, most sponsors are trying to do the right thing. Like they're trying to do something reputationally enhancing, not damaging. These are people who have long careers by and large. Yes, there were some excesses over the last couple of years, but you know, as you see going forward, you need to be a really credible individual and organization to do these deals, and so. You know, I think that's the one thing that we've that's coming out of this "quote unquote" spat crash is that as we come out of the ashes, it's going to be a stronger product, a more sustainable, durable product. Um, if we average, I think it's twelve spat IPOs per month over the next twelve months. By the end of 2023, there'll be about 250 spacs outstanding if you assume a 15 month duration so that's great right i think that's a much more sustainable level than the 600 today and then the bar to raise a spac has gone up as you know the overfunded trust is a great mechanism um to like you know you've got to put up on a 200 million raise you got to put an extra 20 cents you got to come up with another four million bucks as a sponsor it's not a free call option. I know a lot of people like to point to the fact that sponsors get these "quote unquote" free founder shares at a penny. It's just—it's simply not true. I mean, yeah. there's a real risk pool, and you know, I've seen sponsors that you know, they've, they've lost a good chunk of their liquid net worth, right? By you know, they lose two to four million dollars because a typical two hundred million raise today costs about $12 million if you think about a 1020 and trust deal. And you've got to fund then extensions if it comes to that. And so there's there's a real risk there. And uh, I can tell you most sponsors are not making 10x their money. They're making like a multiple or two of capital invested when all said and done. Plus in the current market environment, it appears that underwriters have taken a step back and I think going forward, having more discipline from the underwriter's standpoint and perhaps on the sponsor side, if we could see more performance-oriented uh, promote, that would certainly increase the viability of the product there such that it's not a free lunch. Uh, of course, it never it is for the sponsor. And on top of that, you've been having all this regulatory pressure, a number of proposed changes from the SEC and you're talking about 
sponsors not wanting to do a crappy deal and not risk their reputation. Now, one that is a prime candidate for that would be Pershing Squares. I mean, they don't really have the standard promote. And then they're battling the SEC for that spark structure, trying to create some innovation in the SPAC space. Now, what are your thoughts on where we go from here and the future regulatory environment? Yeah. The Pershing one, I'll come back to that at the end because I, I, it's, it's so fascinating to me. Bill Ackman's just an incredibly fascinating individual. And just like a, a random side tangent, I had the opportunity to do um, the roadshow meeting with him when he raised it. And he was like in his Hamptons house or something. And, and he was just like meeting with institutions. And I was like, Bill, where did you come up with this idea to do this back with the Tontine structure and all this other stuff? And he said, when I was two years old. So you know, he's been thinking about it for a while. Right. And when he brought the universal music deal it was a, a very complicated you know reverse morris trust type situation and yeah then the spark with the rights and all this other stuff side uh, note on I that think, i did try to have him on the podcast when they announced the umg deal but i couldn't uh, get him so vic if you have his ear uh, feel free to no, I, don't have, I don't have his ear <laughs> he was trying to raise what four billion at the time of the idea yes. so he talked to anybody that could write a check at that point so, right. <laughs> so um but yeah, I mean, it's I, I, it appears the NY the, the SEC and then the NYC or however it's going to work is not going to approve this spark anytime soon. And right. so I was going to the OTC for his press release, which is disappointing because I actually think it's an interesting innovation and um, it creates a healthier product. It's a you know, as you think about SPAC 2.0, 3.0, as we continue to evolve, I think heading to the spark structure is actually where product is headed where you don't have to put up the capital. If you like the deal, you have a right struck at 10 or whatever the you know the trust value is and you can exercise that right at the time of the business combination and you don't have to tie up your money and it'll hopefully bring more fundamental investors in that believe in the sponsor, believe in the management team of the target and want to own the asset versus guys playing for a yield. And I think that's ultimately where the SPAC market needs to go. And you know, I, I think the SEC. To your point, the SEC proposed rules are they've slowed down the IPO issuance tremendously. We've got a 60-day comment period. It'll probably be extended. I mean, a lot of organizations and trade groups and associations have said that you know, 60 days. Not even just for SPACs, for the private equity stuff, crypto, other stuff. They've said these 30, 60, 90-day comment periods are just not substantive enough for broad, sweeping changes over how things have been done. So. I think we're in a three to six month lull. Um, some of the banks are starting to gear up their underwriting. Uh, a couple of the bulge bracket banks are, instead of the 2% front end and three and a half deferred, they're now doing 2% on the front end and zero deferred because they, you know, they don't know where the underwriter's liability is going to shake out. I think that's a, a great innovation in that if you've got a 200 million raise, so then you've got a 7 million deferred underwriting fee even if 100% of the shares redeem on a $200 million trust. Yeah. Now that's $7 million of real cash yeah. that is not escaping for somebody underwriting T-bill risk. So you know, from that perspective, we're in, as a sponsor, I should say, sponsors are in for a you know, rough six to nine months, and it happens to coincide with the maturity wall. It's coming, you know, in Q1 of 23. Um, but I think ultimately the product's going to come out stronger as we get into the back half of 23. Something that you mentioned earlier was SPAC sponsors that have done it the right way. 
what what in your mind makes makes a great SPAC sponsor? So, uh, you know, uh, the one thing we say when we kind of underwrite investing in these risk pools and backing sponsor management teams that are in these boards and management teams is that the first time that you're the CEO or a lead audit committee director or board member uh, of a public company should not be when you raise a SPAC. So... <laughs> That's the first thing, right? You're, you're supposed to be taking a billion-plus company public, helping mentor, shepherd, grow them into the public markets. And so you know, that's one thing that I think the banks got loose with on their standards is that the person sitting on the other side of the table, do they have the right pedigree to help shepherd and mentor and develop a company into the public markets? And then – is that there's a? I think then the institutional investor has to hold the sponsor accountable that the deal they do, like you know, if you're taking a media company public, you better have been a media company CEO or senior executive for the last 20 years, right. or you know, and had a credible Rolodex and experience and can help that company through the struggles that they will have going forward in a credible way. You used to see when SPACs prior to 2019, three to four of a SPAC board would come sit on the public company's board and have an ongoing role. Now it's, you know, it's maybe one guy sits on the board and the other one goes on to SPAC three, four, five kind of thing. Like, you know, it's just, it's truly just a shell where they're providing a structure to go public. And it's a very dilutive structure. So yeah. you've got to add real value. It'll take time. It's like anything in finance, right? You know, these products, financial innovations, they go through 10 different iterations and then, you know, they figure it out. And I think, you know, the SPAC market itself is still an emerging asset class. And that, you know, creates a lot of the opportunity. There's a regulatory arbitrage. There's a structure arbitrage. Um, there's a relative immature product arbitrage to the broader inv- investor community. So those things will mature over time. And you know, I, I think we we do this podcast a year from now. It's going to be a very different conversation about what the asset class looks like. But I firmly believe it's here to stay. It's a val- valuable tool in the toolbox. For capital markets, you know, activity it serves a purpose for a lot of companies that aren't able to access a traditional IPO, or it's a better fit for companies that than a traditional IPO. Um, for private equity or founder-backed companies, it's a better path to a future liquidity event than you know a strategic sale or other things. It's just a lot of this has been lost in the noise the last uh, you know two years and. We're, we're getting there. I mean, I think the market, I think you'd agree with me, Julian, the market kind of crashed before these SEC proposed rules anyway. So yeah. Like, the market you know, fixed it was, itself for the most part. Right. The market itself. Exactly. Right. It was the excesses of 2020 post the pandemic and 21 are really kind of out of the market. And, you know, I, I don't blame the regulators in any respect. It's they can't move as quickly as these markets move. And so, you know, the current administration only gotten into place probably, what, a year and a half ago. So it's not like Gensler's had a lot of time. But I think the market's kind of self-corrected on its own. And, um, you know, we're kind of setting ourselves up for a better long-term sustainable product. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how things shake out, say, in a year or so. Vic, I think you've got yourself 
uh, wedded to another Absolute Return podcast show uh, nice, next nice. <laughs> in 2023. But prior to letting you go today, certainly took up quite a bit of your time. I did want to get one more insight specifically for those looking to break into the industry or those kind of brand new to the capital markets, Wall Street. What sort of advice would you give them as a two-decade veteran of the yeah. industry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll tell them how I did because I didn't you know, come through the traditional routes, went to state school and things like that. Um, I think today the advantages and the amount of information out there is just incredible. Like, I love going on Twitter. I was like in, a, in one of those anonymous accounts for like the last three, four years. And now I finally like put a public account out with my name on it. But I love following like, you know, folks like you and others that just, there's just a wealth of information that in a wealth of resources that are on the internet. And, you know, I, I don't go on Reddit as much, but on the FinTwit community is fantastic. Um, you know, I think reading Buffett's letter, Bezos's old letters, Howard Marks, you know, Joel Greenblatt stuff. Um, I, I can tell you my success or what motivates me to do this like 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week is just being passionate about it, right? And so um, I think being in the financial markets is something you have to be passionate about. You have to really enjoy it. It's it's grind. You know, it's it's you're up at 6.30 and you're usually not turning your Bloomberg off till 7.30 kind of thing if you're doing it right. And it's a very competitive market. A lot of Wharton grads, you know, doing this and you got to you gotta be on your A game and I think it's like anything else in life would be my advice for people that want to get into the financial markets is just you got to outwork your competition a little bit and, you know, read as much as you can possibly get your hands on, network as much as you can. Um, You know, that's why I mentioned Twitter on some level. You know, I respond to direct messages all the time. People ask me stuff if I'm able to. And, um, you know, and I ask questions of, I think I tweet at you, you know, and you respond to me sometimes, right? And, you know, it's, so I, I think there's a lot of resources out there if you're looking to break into the industry. Um, you know, I took the CFA 20 years ago. I don't necessarily recommend that for anybody. It was a painful experience and I don't know how directly applicable it was to uh, the real world. I don't necessarily even know if an MBA was that applicable to the real world or to investing in the marketplace. And I think it's just getting out there and making mistakes in your portfolio and learning from your mistakes, right? Like, you know, you, you do your homework, you do your research, you talk to whoever you can talk to, and you invest in a stock or a company, and you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to lose some money, so keep the position small as you grow, and, you know, you'll get there. And in particular, I think breaking the buy side, those are like the traditional avenues. I can tell you from like the interns we've brought on, and a couple of them have turned into full-time hires. Someone hits me on LinkedIn, and you know, it's like they give a pitch on something that's interesting, that's you know, relevant to what we're doing. Say, hey, I want to intern for you during the school year, and if we have a need, I think you know, I've generally found in my career, I've been fortunate that people have been willing to be mentors and you know, be uh, you know, give me 20, 30 minutes of their time, and so hopefully, you know, I'm doing the same, you know, and paying it back and. I think that's a great way to kind of learn more about the industry and expand yourself. But if you have, you got to have the passion. You got to have the passion. If you don't have the passion, this isn't the industry for you. 
Yeah, no doubt that passion drives the hard work that's required, right. along exactly. with uh, quite a bit of luck, of course, to be successful in this business and certainly working hard. I should mention you co-sponsored GSRM, which is an active SPAC in the market yes. these days. And so listeners should be aware about that. And Vic, thanks so much for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back and wishing you the best of success at Meteora and the SPAC you got out yeah. in the market and all your other endeavors. I'll see you on Twitter. I appreciate the time. <laughs> it's right. nice to meet Mike. Cheers. You Take care. Bye. Have a good afternoon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.